Hello all, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, depending on when you're watching this, and welcome to The Goddess Project. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. I am an ancient historian and an Artemis expert. In fact, one could argue I am the Artemis expert uh, at the moment, the only one working on um, the academic unraveling of Artemis's worship and history. Today, we are going to talk about the double axe, the symbol of the double axe. And I'm very, very excited to talk to you all about it and to share with you some of the ways in which I've gone down this rabbit hole of this double axe symbolism. For those of you who have joined me before and who are subscribed to this channel, I want to say hi and thank you so much for subscribing, for sharing, for listening. Um, you know how much I love symbols and how important symbols are in thinking about history and contextualizing history. And so I'm very, very excited that you're here. Uh, for those of you watching me for the first time or listening to me for the first time, welcome. Uh, I do want to give you fair warning that this episode and this podcast is unedited. I do not edit the video. I do not edit the audio. I just kind of go with it. Um, and I have a plan which we work through. And then sometimes I have revelations or aha moments um, as we talk about this stuff. And so I would like to um, say welcome to you all. And uh, I hope that you enjoy the show. So without further ado, let us jump into this concept of the double axe or what is called the Labrys of the goddess. Today, we're going to talk about Minoans and we're going to talk about butterflies and we're going to talk about lesbians and we're going to talk about the Minotaur and Zeus. And as you can see, this symbol is so profound <laughs> that archaeologists are still stumped, to be very honest with you. Um, there are many associations that we're going to talk about, and there are many explanations. But to be fair, again, now that I'm thinking of it, there is no primary source that dictates for us exactly what this item um, is used for or symbolizes. And so everything is a bit of a guesswork. And yes, it's an educated uh, guesswork, but it is still a bit of a guesswork. So keep that in mind as we move forward. And if anything comes to mind as we are um, walking through this depth of information about the symbol and about this item, please feel free to add your comments um, to if you're listening to me on Spotify or iTunes or whatever, or on YouTube, let me know what you think. And also let me know where you've seen the Labrys because it there, there was a period of history where it became a weapon and then it's just seen everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Um, one of the first times that I've seen it, actually, before we begin, is at the um, Heraklion Museum, which is in Crete, which is in the city of Heraklion. And as you'll see, the Labrys is often um, attributed to the Minoans of Crete. And one of the things that I noticed right away, so when you walk in the Heraklion Museum, there are several sections where um, they've um, displayed the Labrys, and some of them are a bit aggressive. So there's one, 
for example, one display where there's three tall um, pieces with a labrys on top, like three, these three tall kind of sticks, you know, larger than life, uh, you know, two times my height, maybe 10 feet tall, 12 feet tall. And then there are entire glass sections where they found so many bronze pieces of labrys that they've just kind of piled them. They put them on the wall and then kind of piled them on the on the bottom uh, alongside some swords. One of the things that seems very, very clear is that this would have been a really flighty weapon. Um, these pieces of bronze are very, very thin, very, very thin. I can't imagine using it as a weapon. One could argue that if they were very, very sharp, they could slice through someone's skin, body, neck, etc. But they are they are very, very flimsy pieces of bronze. And so many historians argue that in fact they were never weapons. And for the Minoans, we don't have any data of the Minoans actually going to war with each other, certainly not. Uh, and with others, not so much. They were great traders. They had a great agricultural system. They have massive, massive uh, sites where they lived. I know many people call them palaces, although that's a Arthur Evans label. Um, we don't know if they're palaces. We don't know if they had kings. We don't. We don't hear anything about that. We don't actually know anything about the Minoans. Let's be honest, other than what the Mycenaeans tell us, and the Mycenaeans didn't like them, and they arrived as the Minoans were in decline. So everything that Arthur Evans tells us has to be taken with a grain of salt, and you have to really see the bias of his time, where when he walks into a structure that looks like Knossos, for example, or Zakros, or Feistos, which we're going to talk about today, or Malia. Um, he looks at them and goes, well, these structures are so massive, they must be palaces. And it is highly unlikely that they were palaces. In fact, now uh, many scholars are beginning to doubt there was a kingship at all. Uh, people did live in these constructs, maybe priestesses, maybe like accountants, uh, people who were in charge of temple goods. There seems to be temple areas. There were lots of pottery there, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's, there's a lot about the Minoan civilization that we don't know. And as many of you know, we have not transcribed linear A, which is the Minoan alphabet. We have transcribed linear B. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But we have to be very careful not to apply linear B knowledge directly to linear A. It doesn't really help. And so there's a lot of mystery around the Minoans. There's lots that we don't know. There's lots that we're assuming. And I'm glad that much of that is being revisited. And so I just want you to keep that in mind as we move forward um, and as you travel uh, to Crete, for example, and you look at the so-called palaces, or as you think about Minoan civilization, um, one of the things you want to ask yourselves is how how do we know what, what we know? And of course, the main way is through the Mycenaeans and later the Greeks, and then Sir Arthur Evans and a, and a couple of other archaeologists that were um, around at the in the 1900s and discovered Sir Arthur S Kevin Evans discovered Knossos, um, and he made some very, very sweeping assumptions and reconstructions, actually, of the site that now cannot be undone. Um, 
not in a insidious or sinister way, but just in his own bias, you know. So I want you to keep that in mind as we move forward. And actually, you should probably keep that in mind as we move through any piece of history. Um, it is better to approach history with caution and with uh, a little bit of a critical eye than to assume that what we're told is the truth. So what is the labyrinth? Uh, what is what is it exactly? And so for those of you that are not watching on YouTube, it looks like a double axe. So there is a stick in the middle. In this case, for example, in the image that I'm showing here, there is a bronze stick. And on either side, you have an axe face, okay? Um, and it also looks like wings. So we're going to talk about wings. Uh, the labrys is also known as the sagaris or the halbris, okay? So it's an asymmetrical double-headed axe. It is, most scholars agree, it is a ritual symbol. So we're going to probably go with a ritual symbol more than a weapon, uh, and it is one of the sacred symbols of Cretan religious practices. And by that, I mean Minoan religious practices. The term labrys is a very interesting term. Plutarch says the term labrys is a Lydian expression for axe. Okay. Um, and so that the Lydians call the double-edged axe a labrys. And Arthur Evans posits that the term labyrinth which we're going to talk about, originates from the labrys. So although I'm going to show you because that, that seems to be a little bit interesting um, because a labyrinth does not necessarily look like a labyrinth, a labrys. <laughs> um, but there is, there may be a ritual connection um, to a performance through a labyrinth uh, that is connected to the use of a labrys. Okay. <laughs> in Delphi, there was a priestly group that was known as the Labiates that were originally named Labriates. And these were known as the servants to the double axe. Okay. In Roman times, there are, are goddesses such as Petrae and Messene, another goddess named Lafria, who is often linked with Artemis. They were venerated and they were thought to be linked to the link to the Delphi, Delphi region, and they were venerated um, with the labrys. The I'm going to say this a lot today, guys. Bear with me. Yeah. Interestingly, in um, Latin, the term labrys um, has its etymological roots in the Latin term labus, which means lips. So we'll talk about why this is important uh, in a little bit. Uh, now, don't forget, of course, that the that Latin or the Roman interpretations of certain terminology that comes out of Greek comes later. So I think that's really fascinating. We're going to talk about how does this double axe, that is a, a religious symbol and then perhaps a weapon, become associated with this uh, concept of lips. It's really, really fascinating. Now, in Crete... And this double axe is not a not a weapon, and it is constantly associated with female deities, not male deities. Women tend to be um, connected in Minoan culture with the double axe and with the labyrinth. So Ariadne, for example, dances the labyrinth, um, and so this is an association that we see in artifacts in which only women handle 
or perform with the double X. There is also a possibility that this term labyrinth is derived from an Egyptian phrase, meaning the temple at the entrance of the lake. Um, Herodotus and Strabo talk about this, the Egyptian labyrinth near Lake, lake Moeris. Um, and so there are different interpretations in which the double axe and the overlapping labrys and labyrinth seem to be interconnected. There is also a double axe symbol at Katalhiuk, which dates back to the Neolithic age. So we're going to look at some um, recent, somewhat recent discoveries of double axe symbolisms in one of the tepes in Turkey, one of the ancient Neolithic tepes in, um, in Turkey. Yeah. And one of the other aspects that we're going to look at is um, this idea of, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Zeus being associated with the labyrinth himself, although this is a later concept uh, in Labradome. So we're going to look at that. We find that there are some carrion coins that have a representation of the labyrinth as well. But by the time we get to Zeus, let's uh, we have time for Zeus. Let's begin at the beginning. Let's talk about the symbol of the Minoan mother goddess. Um, if you are watching on YouTube, you can see that there are two three women that are um, coming up to something. Uh, it looks like a cauldron, perhaps. And on either side of this cauldron, there are these poles with a double labrys on top. One of the fascinating things that I don't see anyone writing about um, is this, what I call a double labrys. And perhaps some of you have seen it in other places. Um, I mean, seen something about it in other places. And so it, so the reason why I say that is because it looks like there's a double axe and then an extended double axe outside of that. So there's like four heads, four blades, let's say. Um, and this is the Cretan or the Minoan image that we see over and over and over again. In this case, this image on top of these two labrises, there are birds that are standing there and um, women, priestesses, um, I don't know. They're definitely not the goddess, I don't think. So let's assume that they are priestesses are coming up to this cauldron in between the labrises, and they seem to be pouring something from pots into um, this, this cauldron that's standing here. So we know that the double axe is exclusively associated with goddesses. Um, it certainly seems to serve as a symbol that talks about... Um, the arch of creation, the beginning of creation, and is sometimes associated with a term called matter arch, which is like the beginning of all things, the singular beginning of all things. And in this case, the singular beginning of all things seems to be the goddess. And so there is an implication here that the Minoans may have believed that the goddess, a singular goddess, created the cosmos and the entire world. There seems to be that implication. Smaller versions of the double acts were used as votive offerings. If you walk around the Heraclean Museum, but anywhere, if you go to the National Museum in Athens, you will find collections, even the British Museum, collections upon collections of 
little tiny gold double axes and people wore them on their necklaces um they may have you know they're found in caves and in burial sites so they may have been offerings um numerous numerous i would say hundreds and hundreds of these little double axes can be found um one notable axe that i think is kind of fascinating is the uh, example of the Arkalokri axe and the Alka mm, Arkalokri axe um, is a an axe that was find that was found in the second millennium BCE. It is Minoan bronze. It is a double axe. Uh, it was excavated in 1934 in the Arkalori cave in Crete, and this piece is believed to be having used for religious rituals, and it has 15 symbols on it that are in Linear A. I mean, they appear to be in Linear A. Some scholars disagree. Um, so there's always debate about Linear A. Um, you can find this um, at the Iraklian Museum, uh, or you could see the image that I have here. It is a double axe. It is very corrupted bronze. But in the middle of it, you could see that someone has uh, dug into the bronze, um, these 15 images. And it's unclear what the, of course, because we haven't deciphered linear A, but they are the same images that we see on the Phaistos disc, which was found in, at the site of Phaistos. I know sometimes people still call it the palace of Phaistos in Crete, but it, again, I hesitate to use the word palace until we have some confirmation that there was some kind of kingship during the Minoan period. Um, the Phaistos disc is also at the Iraklian Archaeological Museum. Any of many of you can go, anyone can Google it and see. It is an undeciphered um, language. And one of the things that was really fascinating as I was reading about this was, and I hadn't really thought about it, although it seems very simple. The Phaistos disc is written in what appears to be a labyrinth style. So if you're familiar with a labyrinth, I'm going to show you an image of it in a minute. It's a circular. Um, it's, it's a circular shape. It's, so it you're it's know, what's 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 another word for labyrinth? A maze, maybe. It's a it looks like a circular maze where you enter, you walk around, you get to the center, and then you come out a different way, and you walk around and you come out. That's probably a good way to explain it as a maze. What I hadn't realized before, although staring you literally right in the face, is that the Phaistos disc is language, so symbols, in the pattern of a labyrinth. And so I was reading one of the scholars in preparation for this episode, and they were saying, not only do we not understand reading it the way that you would enter a labyrinth, get to the center, and come back out, but what we don't realize is that you could even read it backwards. And if you read it backwards, it might mean something totally different. And I thought, oh my gosh, we haven't even started deciphering this at all. And we're already talking about the complications of that translation. Um, but it's fascinating because it shows us that the Minoans had put so much emphasis on the labyrinth and the labris that there can't be any denying that this was for ritual purposes, for religious purposes for them. We just can't figure out what that is. Um, and so we are creating um, educated theories based on repetition. Actually, that's a good way of putting it, based on repetition. Um, Robert Graves has this interesting uh, quote. 
about the double-headed axe. He says, a familiar emblem of Cretan sovereignty, shaped like a waxing and a waning moon, joined together back to back and symbolizing the creative as well as the destructive power of the goddess. He says this in the Greek myths. Now, again, um, I hesitate with Robert Graves. Sometimes I like his work and I think his work is pioneering uh, in the sense of that it was a really um, full analysis of um, ancient Greek myth. But sometimes he says things that, again, are clearly biases of his time. However, this idea of the moon is kind of fascinating. Um, the idea that it looks like it's a waxing and a waning moon back to back. Ugh, I'm not sure that I buy it, but it would be interesting um, to connect it to this idea of the creative and destructive power of the goddess. One of the interesting connections um, is the is is two goddesses who hold these two um, axes in their hands and there's lots of imageries of women so priestesses goddesses again when we see imagery of women holding anything well actually um there is a way to define whether or not the woman in the image is a goddess or a priestess and usually it's about where this individual is sitting or standing what is she holding is she facing towards the people while well, they're all facing towards her there's a way to measure it some of the material that we've come across though especially around the double axe is that the the, the woman, the female is facing forward <laughs> uh, and often alone. Um, and so that's a really interesting image. And so often we, re, we, we fall back on the image of the goddess, that this is a goddess holding the double axe. Again, goddess and high priestess to me um, are interchangeable terms. Yeah? And so here we have an image of a Cretan goddess an ancient image of a, of a goddess holding the double axe. And then we have an image of a modern depiction um, of a woman holding an axe, holding the double axe in each hand. Now, I thought I would make this connection for you because it kind of blows my mind a little bit. So I came across this piece of work um, that is on a blog. It's unauthored. The only person that, I, that I've... Um, the only name that this individual uh, gives themselves is like the Canadian Zenist. It's a weird name. I, I, I So I tried to trace down who this individual is. Not that it's very relevant, but I find this uh, theory fascinating. And so I wanted to give them credit. Uh, but there's this interesting connection. So I'm going to take you through it. There's this interesting connection based on a small inscription we found on a double axe. Okay. With linear A markings that connect Demeter, the goddess Demeter, to Mount Ida in Crete, to Hagia Triada. Yeah. So I'm going to try and take you through this short inspiration that this inscription has given. Now, I did say that Linear A has not been um, officially translated, but there are acceptable interpretations of some of the symbols. In this case, what we have here, and um, I, you can see it if you're on YouTube with me, obviously, and if you're listening to me, we have four symbols 
on that are again scratched into this one of the sides of this axe and it has been translated as so the four symbols are i da ma te okay four terms i da ma te and i da ma te is often associated with the name of demeter so let me take you through this demeter is the daughter of cronus and rhea Okay, and she's the sister and sometimes mistress of Zeus, by whom she has Persephone. We know this. Demeter's attributes, especially for the Eleusinian mysteries, are a wreath of ears of corn and a double axe or a labrys. Now, to be fair, as a person that has gone to, Ele to the site at Eleusis, I did not see a double axe there. Um, however, the museum at the time was closed. Uh, the site had been closed for a long time. The site had just opened, and I'm told the museum is open. So I will revisit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shelf that. I don't want to say that there is no image of the double axe at Eleusis, but I didn't see any on the stones. I saw a lot of torches and other symbols of uh, Demeter and the Chthonic mysteries, but we are told that Demeter, one of her symbols, is the double axe or the labrys. And again, we're told that it might have something to do with the waning waxing moon, especially around the mysteries of the Eleusinian uh, festivals. Uh, Demeter is often seen with all kinds of other symbols as well. Now, so Demeter, we've got Demeter, um, the daughter of Rhea, sometimes holding a double axe. Okay. Then we have Mount Ida. Mount Ida okay, is a mountain on the island of Crete. It's one of the highest mountains, one of the highest topographic uh, mountains in Greece. And it holds sacred um, significance in Greek mythology, as this is where Rhea lived. So we've got Demeter, daughter of Rhea, sometimes using a double axe. And now, now we've got Mount Ida, where Rhea lives. So we're making these connections. Yeah. It is also known as the Idean cave where, according to legend, Zeus was born, okay? Sometimes though, most popularly in Crete, if you ever go visit Crete, they will take you to the Psycro cave. The Psycro cave is on the Lasithi plateau and they will say that that's where Zeus was born and raised when he was hiding from Kronos. But there are some theories that he was born in the on the mountain of Rhea. Okay, Zeus, let's pretend that Zeus is um, irrelevant here, yeah? There is a great deal of emphasis on Mount Ida as the place of Rhea. Okay. Then we have the Hagia Triada. So the Hagia Triada or the Holy Trinity, this translates into the Holy Trinity, is a Minoan archaeological site in Crete. This site includes the remains of an extensive settlement known as the Royal Villa. It's in the Masara Plain near the Palace of Phaistos. So, at Hagia Triada, we find the um, the Hagia Triada sarcophagus. So, this is a, a a sarcophagus. On the very face of it, there is the image that I shared earlier of the three women that are walking up to this cauldron that is in between two poles with double axes on top of them and pouring, making an offering. So by now you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Carla. 
I want you to think about this connection. On this double X, we have the name of Demeter or Idamate. Idamate could be translated to either an early name of Demeter or Mount Ida. So there seems to be a very strong connection between Rhea, the goddess of the mountain, her daughter Demeter, and the double axe. Secondly, at Hagia Triada, at the site near the palace of Phaistos, they found this Hagia Triada sarcophagus. On the sarcophagus, you have three women walking up to a cauldron in between two poles with the double axe. So what I'm saying with this evidence, I'm taking you through, I'm taking you through actually a little bit of how we as academics make connect the dots, is that there seems to be a very powerful connection between the double axe, mountain of Ida, the sarcophagus of Hagia Triada. There seems to be a very deep connection between the double axe and this um, place of life and death. The Eleusinian mysteries are mysteries of life and death. We are told that there are mysteries about sort of finding salvation in the afterlife. But we don't know exactly because there's a, there's a lot of mystery around it. So Demeter is a Chthonic goddess. Her daughter is the is the ruler of the underworld, the queen of the underworld. I you know, Mount Ida is the place where Rhea lives and throughout all of these incredible spaces of transformation and transition we have the double X as a religious symbol. So it's fascinating to ask ourselves, why the double X? Why would the double X be a symbol of transformation? Why would the double X be the symbol of Chthonic goddesses, goddesses that go into the underworld, goddesses that deal with life and death and salvation? Well, that's kind of what we're looking towards answering today, isn't it? Let's talk briefly about the labyrinth as a labyrinth. I found these two images that I love, 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 because I think they're really fascinating. And I hope that if you're listening to me, you'll have a chance to sort of um, go to YouTube and, and scroll through and find this image. There is an image of a labyrinth, labyrinth. I don't know why it's making me do that. that, that. Uh, so the double axe, and it's got this, like the way that you would imprint this image of the double axe onto a field. And then there is an image of an actual labyrinth and the way you would imprint, you know, think about like uh, crop circles. So if you were to imprint an image of a crop circle on um, of a double axe and then imprint an image of a labyrinth. At first, you look at them together and you go, these don't look very um, similar because it looks like the labyrinth has, you know, the stick in between that holds the two. Uh, it looks more like a person with wings at first, visually speaking. And the labyrinth, like we talked about, looks like a circular maze. But if you pay closer attention, you can see that the labyrinth, the round circle, also seems to have a stick in the middle, right? And then, of course, a center piece. And then it looks like the circle around it might be wings. So the reason why I put these two images together is for you to see how it could have been, especially if you were in the ancient world and you're making labyrinths every year for festivals, Chthonic underworld festivals, um, you could see how these two may overlap, right? Um, the labyrinth is, again, a Chthonic symbol. 
when you walk into it, into the maze to get to the center, you are said to walk into the underworld, to walk into your shadow self. You are you are supposed to imagine almost like you're walking down in a maze. Once you reach the underworld or the shadow world, you must then walk back out, right? So you follow a different path to walk back out. And we are told that when people walk back out of the labyrinth, that they are transformed, that perhaps you have seen your shadow self or like Inanna, you had gone down into the underworld and come back out changed, et cetera. There's lots of interpretations, Um, but no one goes into the underworld and comes back unchanged. So there is this tradition um, in the book, The Perfect uh, Matrimony, uh, Samuel Owen Ware states that tradition states that in the center of the labyrinth, there exists a synthesis. That is to say that the labyrinth of the temple. Etymologically, the word labyrinth originates from the word labyrinth. The latter is a double-edged axe, a symbol of the masculine and feminine sexual force. So this particular individual, this particular writer, interprets the adaptation of the labyrinth into a labyrinth to uh, incorporate a sense of completion, a sense of a whole self. So we know that all human beings have feminine and masculine qualities. I know that patriarchy and the Greeks have divided them into two things. You know, you're either feminine or masculine or uh, Jung goes into feminine and masculine um, archetypes and all this kind of stuff. But in truth, and certainly according to the Minoans, assume I'm making an assumption because again, we have no actual pieces from them. But what we see repeatedly in their art is a balance, a harmony, almost like a, the labrys might be an early or a parallel um, yin-yang symbol. So if you're familiar with the yin-yang symbol um, in, in in Asian history, it ha- or in Taoist history, um, it has um, this sense of balance, not good and evil necessarily, not masculine and feminine, feminine, although all those could be incorporated, but it's about balance. And one could argue that the labrys is a symbol of balance. Again, not just between masculine and feminine, between life and death, between up and down, between et cetera, for um, the Mediterranean and certainly for the Minoans of Crete. So that's a really interesting, I think, argument. The labyrinth always fascinates me. It has always fascinated me. Mazes have always fascinated me. I love mazes. I love getting lost in them. I love finding my way out of them. Um, I don't know. Perhaps I had something to do with the labyrinth in a past life. Who knows? But um I feel like, so I intrinsically feel like there is something supernatural about the labyrinth. So uh, this past weekend, no, actually a while ago now, sorry, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a gathering in Northern California. And at this particular camp where we were at, they had built a labyrinth um, out of stones, you know, not too high, just, un, just you know, a shallow labyrinth. And um, I had gone on a little adventure to find it. You know, somebody was saying, it's really difficult to find it in the woods. Um, don't get lost <laughs> going to look for it, et cetera. Uh, and so I said in my mind that I'm going to find this labyrinth and I'm going to walk it. 
Um, and so I did. It took me forever. Let me just tell you. <laughs> it took me a while. And to be fair, I did find myself in the Northern Californian woods. It was a little chilly calling on the ancestors to guide me to find this thing. Because uh, if you've ever been in the Northern California woods, you know that everything in any woods really, you know, everything looks the same after a while. Uh, and so I was kind of orienting myself. I had a little basic map. I did find it though. Uh, I kind of stumbled upon it, which is why I know that the uh, spirit guys or whatever was in that woods was like this way, Carla, turn, turn. I had kind of stumbled upon it because you couldn't really see it, you know, because the stones were kind of flat on the ground. Anyways, and I began walking. I took off my shoes. I know it was really drastic. Uh, sometimes I like to be dramatic and I walked it barefoot and it was very, very painful because again, it's full of rocks and branches and things because it's in the wild. But it's fascinating to walk it for two reasons. Number one, it looks shorter. So you look at it and you go, oh, that's pretty quick. That's going to take me two minutes to walk. And then you realize that you're going around in these complicated circles. Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, ah, crap, this is taking a really long time. So I walked it. I was singing. I got to the center. When I got to the center, there was like an overwhelming sense of something. I don't know. I don't know if I'm oversharing, but there was a, I just started bawling. You know, there was like a, like an overflow of tears and not sadness, but just great gratefulness, uh, an overflow of just gratefulness um, for everything I've gone through, especially this past year. Um, and I don't know, it just, it's just decided to all come up in these woods. So then I spent some time in the center, uh, you know, sort of reflecting on that and, and, and giving gratitude for that. And then I began walking because then there's another, there's a way to walk out, like I said. And that uh, felt way more arduous. I don't know if my feet had been killing me because I'd walked barefoot on these stones for so long. And then by the time I was in the center and sort of worn out by the emotions, by the time I walked back out, it was, it just seemed so long. I actually don't know. I didn't have my phone with me. I don't even know how long this whole thing took. I'm no, I know the whole experience took me a, a whole day. Um, and then coming out, you know, you can see that you're walking a different path coming out. So that there's something very powerful about the, the labyrinth. Um, and I've made a note to absolutely build one at the Artemis Center in Crete when I begin building uh, that center. I think uh, a labyrinth um, and an archery space are two things that I'm going to have on this site uh, built so that people could walk them uh, both together. So in the ancient world, Minoans would have walked these together as part of the festivals. Often they were massive. Uh, they would have danced them sometimes depending on the festival uh, or they might have walked them alone. We don't know if they walked them alone. Um, they often... Uh, walk them at night because they had a lot of night festivals with torches, holding torches, etc. So labyrinths are very, very important. And as you know, you're probably more familiar with the fact that um, the Greeks and the Mycenaeans tell us that Daedalus built a labyrinth to um, store, to trap the Minotaur. Uh, we're going to talk about the Minotaur in a minute because that's, again, that's a Mycenaean I want to say fan fiction. <laughs> I feel like also ducking <laughs> when I say that. But, um, you know, we, we, of course, we have no evidence of the Minotaur and we have actually no evidence of King Minos other than the Athenian stories uh, about Theseus. 
right? Um, but again, this is the story of the colonizer uh, of the colonized. So anyways, we'll get to that when we look at the Minotaur. Um, but the labyrinth may have been and most likely was the symbol of the goddess. It was a symbol of transformation and transition. And Minoans have labyrinths everywhere. And so we know that this played a key role um, in their daily, yearly lives. The other thing that's really fascinating about the labris is that it might represent the butterfly goddess. Okay, so I have a few pots here for you uh, that I'm uh, I've taken a picture of. These most of these I think are at the British. Uh, sorry, the Iraculan Museum. So if you go to Crete, the Iraculan Museum is a must visit. Um, you can see, you know, sometimes. For example, they very clearly look like a labrys for a ritual. So they have a stick. It looks like a bamboo stick or a piece of wood. And then they have the labrys on top of it. So clearly this is not a butterfly in the sense that this seems like a pole, you know, a, a protection symbol, a gateway symbol, one could argue, any of those things. But then we have these depictions of little tiny sticks with a head. And massive labyrinths, labyrinths on either side, massive double X. These, I think, and some argue with some argue with me and some agree with me, these clearly depict wings. These, uh, these clearly depict an entity with wings, okay? Uh, it seems that there's a head, there's a body, and there are wings. In fact, I would argue these clearly depict a butterfly, is it a butterfly goddess? Hmm, we're going to see. But it's very clearly a butterfly. Yeah. Uh, so this debate has been going on for some time. We have found these figures. Now, this is one of my favorite pieces. We have found the double axe with a little stick in it, a little stick and maybe even with a little head, in several places that are fascinating. Number one is in Malia. So the site at Malia, also called the Palace of Malia. I know if you follow me on social media, you've seen all of my Malia posts and all of them have palace in quotations because again, I hesitate to, to use the word palace, but they're titled that. And so if you're looking for them, I don't want you to get lost saying, you know, where am I going? Where's Carla sending me in Crete? At the site at Malia in the stone, in the stone itself, there is, it looks like someone took a chisel and just dug, dug a double axe symbol. Yeah. Which is almost like two triangles facing each other, the tip of the triangle facing each other, and then a little stick with a head. Okay. Interestingly, and perhaps predictably, at the palace of Phaistos, palace in quotations, at the site of Phaistos, in the rocks. So these are building blocks. Yeah, building blocks. These are not altars. Um, they're not, um, I don't know, they're not sacred objects per se, and they're not, they're really roughly done. Again, in the building blocks, there are, I think this one is in the steps, but even in the building blocks, you could see a crude, again, um, chiseled double axe uh, with a stick in the middle, a thin stick in the middle, and a little head, a little ball at the top. But 
what blows my mind and where I got lost down this entire rabbit hole of butterfly goddess history of butterfly goddess is at the Kokakale Tepe in Tisna in modern day Turkey. In 2018, they dug up a pit. Okay. I'll tell you the short story. You can look it up. Kokakale Tepe in Tisna. They dug up a pit. Inside the pit, there are 15 figures, 15 little, what do you call it? I don't even know how to describe them. It looks like someone is just uh, doodling. 15, okay, of these little double axes. No sticks, nothing. It just looks like someone is doing, you know, when you think about doing a figure eight or the infinity symbol, except this one has sharp edges, right? Like it's almost doing like a sharp edge um, double axe. 15 of them, okay? Now we know that from uh, their double axes have been in the Aegean, perhaps from the Bronze Age, perhaps even before the Bronze Age, but certainly in the in the late Bronze Age, we find a bunch of them. And in the Middle Bronze Age and in all these um, ages. Yeah. And so here we have them in this area. Um, ancient Tisna is located in ancient Aeolus, uh, which borders the village of Izmir today and the Izmir Aliaga district today. Yeah. Um, 15 of these that are that just look like someone is scribbling in stone. They're really, really, really um, significant because they're not an axe. It's very, very clear that they're not an axe. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very clear that they're almost language-like, actually. They're almost language-like. And the archaeologists that have found them, and certainly the ones that have written papers about these double axes um, that have been found in Tisna, are saying that they most certainly appear to be more of a butterfly than a weapon. Right? Um, it's 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 fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. And so I've given you here three sites, but we found them at Knossos. Like I said, we found them in Hagia Triada. We find them at the site of Zacros, which is another Minoan temple. We are finding them everywhere. And many um, scholars are beginning to think about the butterfly question. Many, many scholars are beginning to ask themselves, is this a butterfly motif, particularly the ones that don't have a handle? What do you do with double axes that don't have a handle? And we found so many double axes in Crete without a handle. Now, people can argue, well, the handle might have been made of wood. And so the handle was the first to go. Yes and no, because some of the small gold ones that we find has the handle in it. So why didn't they make bronze handles? I mean, that would have been easy. Um, and so the fact that we find so many without the handle seems to lean towards uh, a butterfly goddess uh, theory and that there's something about a butterfly that is important. Now, if you go to Crete, for example, you will find that there are so many butterflies and that there are butterflies everywhere. And we know that Crete has a long bee, for example, um, tradition. And 
if you go anywhere in the mountains of Crete, you will find beehives everywhere and bees uh, are frolicking freely and enjoying all kinds of uh, flowers and the honey in Crete tastes like the flowers. It's amazing. Okay. Also at the Heraclean Museum, there is this particular image that I have up here. And if you are listening to me, you can go through the IG. I've posted it on IG and I've just grabbed it now. Um, it is a very clear symbol of a figure that is a stick with a ball for a head that is looks like it's potted in a square plant and has these double axe wings. It's on a pot. Yeah, the pot is about 3,000 years old. It's a Minoan pot. It's, it, there is no way that this figure is a weapon. Absolutely no way. I mean, go look at it for yourself. Let me know what you think. It is very clearly something that is potted, which is really fascinating. Something that is grounded in a in a box. And the the double axe shape is as big as the entire figure. So it looks like wings, right? The the the, the double axe or the axe on either side is massive. It is the size of the entire shape perhaps even bigger. And so that's what makes it very, very clear that these are wings. Now, if you don't believe me with that, then I have another image of the chrysalis goddess right next to it. So if you're not watching, you can look up the chrysalis goddess. Um, this image I've pulled from uh, the site of Sid Rieger, who is a historian that actually makes these really wonderful um, ancient goddesses, uh, she makes them, she sculpts them today um, and sells them in these small pieces so that all of us can have access um, to them. This piece is called the Chrysalis Goddess, and it is very, very clear why. It is uh, based on a the actual artifact that was found that is 3,500 years old. Maria Gimbutas talks about her in the Old Gods of Europe. Um, and you, it is basically a half goddess, so the upper body of a goddess with a head, and it, the bottom is a chrysalid. It looks like a cocoon, a chrysalid of a butterfly. And what's really fascinating is that the face of this goddess is very much in that cycladic style, where it's just a round head with a with a sharp nose kind of thing. This de this depiction is very very clear, clearly about transformation. Now, Maria Gimbuta says this may be a death goddess found in a burial site. This may be a death goddess. But one of the things that butterflies do that I didn't know for a long time uh, until I went to a women's gathering in August and we talked about this, and Sid actually is the one that mentioned it to us, um, is that when a caterpillar cocoons itself in a chrysalid, there is a transformation period in which this caterpillar and every everything that it's made of melts into liquid so if you open a chrysalid halfway through its process of rebirth you will just find liquid you will not find a caterpillar you will not find anything except liquid from that liquid if you leave it unopened <laughs> a butterfly forms so uh, um, an insect with wings. And then, of course, after a time, 
the butterfly breaks free of the chrysalid and is, is free. So for a long time, butterflies have had this association with transformation because we see it go from a caterpillar to um, a butterfly. But what Sid had mentioned that really blew our minds at this gathering is that in order to transform, the caterpillar must become nothing. It must melt its entire life, its entire body. And the butterfly is comes from that nothing almost, from that liquid form. Not nothing, but that liquid form. If this is not the epitome of what transformation is, I don't know what else it is, right? Um, it's not just that the caterpillar mods itself into a butterfly. It melts itself. It disappears. So it has this fantastic symbolism of a full melting, almost destruction of life and body as you know it, and then a complete rebirth. It's it's fascinating, right? Fascinating. Of course, there would have been a butterfly goddess. Of course, this goddess would be associated with transformation because think about the magnificence of that. The other thing that I was thinking about today as I was walking uh, here to my office getting ready to record is that one could argue that women's bodies are the cocoon or the chrysalid for life. Because if you think about it, when a woman gets pregnant or is carrying a, a first pregnant, the baby's a zygote, right? There's a zygote. There's a bunch of cells that are multiplying in the cells. So there's almost like a, a an essence of nothingness or smallness or tiny, tiny, tininess, you know, chromosome level, right? Um, and then from that tiny, tiny, you know, egg and spermioids that happens there, um, grows an entire human being. And, and so in that case, the woman's body grows like a cocoon does. And then of course, that baby, that human uh, comes through the body um, and, and is born. And so it makes perfect sense that butterflies would be associated with mystery. Because even as I think about it, what happens while the in the liquid form? You know, like it seems like a magic cosmic space in the liquid form, right? What what kind of experience is it to melt into nothing and to rebirth from nothing into the into this beautiful um, insect? Of course, moths also go through a similar process. Um, and so it's important that it's not always about beauty, but it's about transformation. And so the chrysalis goddess, I think, really um, taps or really proves or supports this idea that the double axe may have been originally a part of a goddess worship, particularly around transformation. Okay. I feel like I've taking you down the journey of the rabbit hole with me. I promised you that I would. And so here we are. Here we are at the bottom of the rabbit hole. And we're about to veer left, my friends. The Labrys is also a symbol um, 
for lesbianisms, or it's an, a lesbian symbol, and it's on a lesbian uh, flag. Now, this is a bit of a controversial flag, uh, because we are told that, so it's usually a purple flag, it used to have a black triangle in the middle, an upside down triangle, which remember, if you've watched my episode on symbolisms and triangles and the pubic triangles, this refers to the pubic triangle. Uh, however, the Nazi regime, the Nazi Germany, uh, used this black triangle um, in their propaganda. And so in some way, they hijacked this symbol. Um, and they also hijacked the pink triangles. And, you know, and they also hijacked the swastika. And so the symbol has become somewhat problematic. Although I'm really, really torn because, you know, there has to be a point at which we take these symbols back. Certainly the pubic triangle, but even the, the swastika symbol, which was a symbol of balance and harmony and peace, you know, of the Indo-Europeans and, and, and predating that perhaps. And so... um that symbol has been um, hijacked. So sometimes it's problematic. The Labrys as well, if you speak to um, some members of the lesbian community, will talk about how this the Labrys represents second wave lesbian feminism uh, or turf, turf mentality, which is trans-exclusionary, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Um, and so... Uh, I saw several TikToks when I was looking up the symbol for lesbianisms that were talking about stop using the labrys, stop using this symbol, stop using it. I, again, I really hesitate to stop using powerful female symbols of ancient goddesses. And what I mean by that is these are symbols of female empowerment. And as such, we who identify as women should be able to incorporate these symbols into our lives. We should not allow them to be hijacked by, you know, Nazi Germany or by dated or early ideology or ideology that may now uh, be problematic, like turf ideology, for example. Um, all of that is problematic, yeah, all of it. But the symbol itself, like the Labrys itself, is a beautiful symbol of empowerment, of goddess empowerment, of female empowerment, of transformation, of transformation. Um, and so it is a symbol that I really want to see um, revived, you know? In 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 the in the what's the word? In the true meaning of transformation in every way, you know. And so, anybody that identifies themselves as a person, as a human that is transforming or has transformed, whether it's physically, whether it's gender, whether it's gone through trauma, whether it's like literally anyone that is felt like they overcame, like they had gone down into the labyrinth of something and made it back up, should be able to carry, wear, use the symbol proudly. And so I'm torn. I'm very, very, very torn um, because um, 
I I want us to go back and use these symbols for their true meaning instead of allowing them to be hijacked. So I'm very, very torn. Uh, but what does, what does lesbianism have to do with the Amazons and the symbol? Well, 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 well. Um, two things. Number one, there are lots of queer modernists who are drawn to create lots of, and actually not just queer modernists, but lots and lots of women who are drawn to quit, create, drawn to quit, drawn to create. And every time I speak about create, there are, there are so many uh, responses from other people, women, men, uh, everyone, everyone on the spectrum who wants to visit Crete or is attracted to Crete or has been there and has experienced something. And so I do think that there's something to the island that is powerful. Um, so if you get to visit it, I think you should visit it as, at least once. Um, it's a fantastic place. And I think that you'll get to experience all of the things I'm sharing with you, um, like visit the museums, uh, visit the different sites, really experience that history firsthand. I think it's really worth it. If you can't get to Crete, then I think it's really fascinating to look up a known history and Minoan civilization. But another fascinating thing uh, about the Labrys in this in this case, being used as a weapon is its association with the Amazons. So we are told that the Amazons, uh, there are a couple of historical references, which we're going to go over in a minute, but we are told that the Amazons used to use the Labrys as a weapon, particularly against the Greeks. And in this case, you know, Hippolyta against Hercules. Um, and that um, the we know that the Amazons often shot arrows. And so we think of them as um, archers, which they were, right? Uh, but they also used the Labrys. And at least it seems in the depiction and in the mythology, we are told that they use a Labrys. And that could be the connection of the um, symbol of goddess empowerment. And we know that the Amazons uh, prescribed, of course, to goddess worship and were anti-patriarchy. And so it wouldn't be surprising to us that they would use a, a, a symbol of the goddess, a symbol of power as a weapon against the patriarchy. So we can very easily see that connection. And that's part, I think, as well of the lesbian connection, the Amazonian connection. Um, I also think this idea of the labrys as uh, the Latin um, translation into lips and so a lot of people talk about like vaginal lips or whatever. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about that. I suppose if we are going to get a little graphic, if you think about the vagina and the two lips and the opening in the middle, perhaps it looks like a labrys. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, what does the lips thing have to do with the labrys, you know, because it's like a double axe. And I was like, I don't understand what is something soft and, you know, beautiful have to do with this somewhat harsh symbol <laughs> wrapping my mind around it. And today I thought, oh, okay, okay. I, <laughs> I think I get it. I think, I think it makes some sense. Yeah. Uh, again, um, it's really fascinating how symbols are so visually um, meaningful to us <laughs> and perhaps uh, 
depending on your perspective, depending on where you're standing, depending the way at the way you're looking at an item. Like for me, the Labras is very easily a butterfly, very easily. That's my first thing. But I could see the other interpretations as well. Yeah, it just takes me a little while sometimes to catch up. Um, and so what does the Labras have to do? So the Labras as the, the lesbian symbol, uh, an early, for example, lesbian symbol associated with the Amazons. We also see it um, as a weapon when we talk about the Labras and the bull. But my friends, that is a very simple understanding of sacrifice. So an argument has been made that the bull in Minoan times was killed with a labrys. Okay. Where do I start with this interpretation? This is a very patriarchal, very late academic bias because it seems very, very clear that the bull and any sacrifice uh, that was offered to the gods was killed with a knife and that the uh, corroded artery, the neck artery was usually uh, cut and that the animal would bleed on the altar as painless and as quickly as possible. The idea that the Minoans would take a double axe, their religious symbol, and chop the head off a bull. Let me just say it is highly unlikely. Yeah, it, it is. It is beyond unlikely. Uh, we know from the images they've left us, the Minoans, not the Mycenaeans. Remember, the Mycenaeans come in later. They're the colonizers. They have some ideas. But the Minoans have less, left us images in which they do a lot of bull leaping. Bulls are a part of their lives. The idea that they would chop off the head of a bull with a labrys is an exaggerated fantasy. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. However, we do have a connection of the uh, Labrys with the myth of Theseus. So as I said before, the Athenians created this myth of Theseus in which, uh, uh, you know, um, King Minos has the Minotaur uh, as a punishment for Poseidon. He has a son called a Minotaur. And Daedalus creates this labyrinth um, where the Minotaur is trapped. However, every Every year, I think, don't quote me, I can't remember, or every seven years, or uh, there is an offering of uh, seven young women and seven young men to the Minotaur. And Theseus, as some of you may know the story, jumps, you know, he's he's a prince of Athens, but he jumps in on the, uh, and replaces one of the young men, goes to Knossos, um, and defeats the Minotaur, Okay. The Minotaur's name, the Minotaur's name is Asterius, which is probably one of the gods of ancient Minoan um, religion. And the, the Theseus killing the Minotaur or killing Asterius is symbolic of um, 
being colonized, of the Mycenaeans colonizing the Minoans. The fact that Theseus sometimes may, uh, is portrayed at times as using a double axe to kill the Minotaur or to carry a double axe to kill the Minotaur is another way of using symbolism of the Minoans against them uh, by the Mycenaeans. Yeah. So there's an interesting story by Robert Graves. Let me just read it to you. He says, Theseus' killings, Theseus's killing of the bull-headed Asterius, called the Minotaur, or Bull of Minos, his wrestling match with Taurus, again, another word for bull, and his capture of the Cretan bull, same thing, are all versions of the same event. Bolinthos, which gave its name to Attic Probalinthus, was the Cretan name for the wild bull. Minos was the title of a Cnosian dynasty, which had a sky bull for its emblem. Asterius could mean the sun or of the sun or of the sky. And it was in bull form that the king seems to have coupled ritually with the chief priestess as moon cow. So according to Robert Graves, certainly here, but other scholars as well, the Minoans had a practice in which um, the king, uh, Robert Graves uses the same monarchical language, but let's say the priest or the consort, that's probably a better word for the Minoans, because the, the the priestesses were the high priestesses. So the consorts and the high priestess would couple, would have intimate relations, would have sex in wearing bull costume. So the consort would be the young bull, Asterius, and the chief priestess would be the moon cow. Okay. One element in the formation of the labyrinth, the labyrinth myth may have been that the palace at Kenosis, the house of the labrys or the double axe, was a complex of rooms and corridors, and that the Athenian raiders had difficulty in finding and killing the king when they captured it. But that is not all. An open space in front of the palace was occupied by a dance floor with a maze pattern used to guide the performers in an erotic spring dance. The origin of this pattern, now also called a labyrinth, seems to have been the traditional brushwood maze used to decoy partridges towards one of their own uh, roosters caged in a central enclosure which uttered food calls love calls and challenges the spring dancers will have imitated the ecstatic hobbling love dance of these partridges whose fate was to be knocked on the head by the hunter so this is robert gray's interpretation which is again there's a bit of bias, but he's writing in in his own time. But I want you to think about this. This is a really fascinating idea. Number one, that the Minoans practiced this type of erotic ritual of the bull and the moon cow. Okay. That there was, that the, that the Minoan complex at Knossos, and some of you who have seen, who are either on Instagram or TikTok with me have seen um, the, um, the little uh, miniature reconstruction that's at the Iraqlion Museum. You've seen the video of that. That place was a labyrinth in itself. So I do believe in what Robert Graves is saying in the sense that when the Athenians and the Mycenaeans arrived and they were trying to find or kill off, maybe not the king, they were probably looking for a king, although they probably were shocked that there was no king. Um, 
but they were trying to kill off, you know, all of the leaders, let's say that lived at Knossos, which are usually priests and priestesses. They couldn't find them or they had a hard time finding them because it was like a labyrinth. And then the image of the circular labyrinth that we talked about earlier was imprinted on the floor. And he suggests that this has to do something with a dance that mimics this dance of these partridges again. Um, that is a bit of uh, his own research that I guess he thinks is something that is um, he has evidence to back up. Uh, either way, there we know for sure that they were dancing. Was it erotic dance? I don't know. Maybe, perhaps it was erotic dance. I do think that there's something about historians when they look at Milnoan culture and they see so many uh, women with their tops open, right? Like all of us are familiar with that Minoan dress uh, or men that are barely clothed. I think that in the colonialist imagination of Western Europe, um, there was still this bias that nakedness automatically equals eroticism. And so there's a lot of eroticism in the interpretation of it. And I don't want to say that the Minoans weren't having a good time and maybe they were having a lot of erotic parties and dances. Uh, but I do want to say that these are also very clearly assumptions. But these point, this this idea about the bull and the moon cow and the sacrifice of uh, the killing of the Minotaur, who is Asterius, perhaps with a double axe of Theseus, really um, lead us into this um, into the interpretation of the horns of consecration of uh, Knossos and all over Crete. So if you go travel in Crete, you will see that there are horns of consecration or what we call horns of Cancru, which is basically it looks like just horns and they're just all over the Knossos site, or they were, and they, and you can find them in nature in Crete on top of mountains, and you can find them everywhere, and you can find them, um, we find them in um, depictions on vases, et cetera, et cetera. So the Maria, um, sorry, uh, Marinatos, Maria Marinatos writes about the horns of consecrations, and she says that actually the horns of consecration, these two horns of the bull, may have been um, a measuring a type of cosmological or calendaristic um, measurement. It describes the sunset and sunrise. Um, and so this idea that um, the sunset and sunrise in the Near East um, would come up as a gate through the horns of consecrations, come up uh, as a gate of the cosmic mountain, um, and associates the double axe between the two mountains with the sun god. So sometimes you will see an image like this one with the bull head with the horns and the double axe on top of it. And so what Marinatos tells us, one of the scholars, is that this actually, that this idea, that this, meh, meh, these depictions of the double axe rising between the two horns uh, may have been a type of cosmological sign or cosmological calendar. Um, and that's possible. You know, again, you look at these two symbols and they're very clearly symbols of something. Um, and so there's a lot of different uh, ideas about what that might be. So if you ever ask yourself, how does the symbol of the goddess that Carlo has been talking about for all this time become a weapon 
become a symbol of masculinity or of war or of battle or of power. I'm going to take you through that in the last part of our episode. One of the most famous depictions, there's two, but one of the most famous depictions of a male divinity with an axe is Zeus Labraundos. Labraundus. Another is Hephaestus, which we're going to talk about in a second. So storm gods that wield thunder weapons. These motifs are very, very uh, familiar in Indo-European religion. So for example, Thor has a hammer, right? Doesn't that hammer look like a double axe? I never actually thought about it until I started falling down this rabbit hole that actually Thor's hammer looks more like a double axe than an actual hammer. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's other examples. Uh, for example, Indra uses his favorite weapon, which is the Vajra. Again, it looks like a double axe. And so it wouldn't surprise us to learn that the double axe becomes a weapon for Zeus that he uses to invoke the storm. Okay. So, let me read to you a quote uh, from Chris Blinkenberg. He says, many points go to prove that the double axe is a representation of lightning. The worship of it was kept up in the Greek island of Tenedos and in several cities in the southwest of former Hellenic Asia Minor. And it appears in later historical times in the cult of the thunder god of Asia Minor, Zeus Labriandis. An impression from the seal stone, which I have an image here, shows the double axe placed together with the zigzag line, which represents the flash of lightning. So, Zeus eventually begins to carry the double axe as his weapon. Now, remember when I told you that the Amazons were the first to wield the double axe as a weapon? However, uh, Heracles attacked Hippolyta and he, you know, he won that battle. He won. I say that in quotation. Of course he won. It's patriarchy. And then he took the axe, the double axe from her and he gave it Hercules. He gave it as a present to Omphali. Yeah. And then they used to carry it as part of the sacred um, uh, regalia. And they would pass it to one another. They didn't think it was worth very much, as so we're told. Um, and then there came a revolution. Okay, So let me read to you a little bit the story that Plutarch tells us about this. So he says, Heracles, having slain Hippolyta and taken her axe with the rest of her weapons, gave it to Omphale. The kings of Lydia had succeeded her, who succeeded her, uh, carried this as one of their sacred insignia of office and passed it down from father to son until Candaulus. Candaulus, however, disdained it. He didn't like it and gave it to one of his companions to carry. He disdained it. He disdained a weapon. Okay. When Gyges rebelled and was making war upon Candaulus, Arcellus, another individual, came with a force from Melassa to assist Gyges slew Candelus and his companion and took the axe to Caria with the other spoils of war. And having set up a statue of Zeus, he put the axe in his hand and called the god Labrandeus from Labris, being the Lydian word for axe. So 
let me take you through this point by point very easily. Heracles steals the double axe that belongs to the goddess from the Amazon, Hippolyta. He gives it to Omphale. Omphale is succeeded by the king, other kings of Lydia, okay, who carry it as an as a symbol of their so it's a symbol of royalty. Of course, it's given to them by Heracles, who defeated Hippolyta, the queen of Amazons, etc. And then it passes to this dude, Candalus, who disdains it and he gives it to his buddy. He goes, Yeah, here, you take it. I don't care for it. And then there's a war, they get attacked, they get killed, and the leaders, the generals of that war party that win, take the axe, build a statue to Zeus, and stick that axe in Zeus's hand and say that now this is Zeus Labrandeus from the Labrys word axe. Incredible, right? Incredible. The other thing that Plutarch tells us is that the word Labrandeus also means, uh, in archaic Greek, it means shining or bright. So you can see here maybe a clearer connection between Zeus as the god of thunder and lightning, so shining and bright. Uh, but it also could be that um, the word labrandeus could be an epitome for shining god. But also this idea that labrys means shining or can be translated as shining or bright. And then in modern Greek, yeah, uh, the word uh, for bright is still lambro, but dios is an ancient uh, word for god. And then that sort of gets connected into theos. Anyways, I'm taking you through a whole language situation. What's important, sorry, getting totally sidetracked. What's important for you to know is that suddenly Zeus becomes associated with this goddess weapon of power that now supposedly we're supposed to believe that it is uh, his uh, symbol of lightning. Okay, And so he, uh, this one case of Zeus uh, has this labrys. He's not always seen with the labrys, so let's be fair. But certainly there is this uh, story. Then there is this other story uh, of Hephaestus. And it's really fascinating because I didn't really realize, actually, that uh, this uh, piece, this uh, pot piece of pottery has Hephaestus holding a double axe. And it is the weapon that Hephaestus uses to crack open Zeus's head when Athena is... Um, banging around in there. And so release Athena. And so I thought to myself, what is the meaning of a male god using a symbol of butterfly transformation, perhaps female genitalia? Okay, stay with me. To crack open, to birth Zeus's head from which is born a goddess of war. I know Athena used to be a goddess of wisdom, but for the Greeks, she's a great uh, a goddess of war. The overlap of symbolism here between a symbol that originally is a of goddess of transformation of life and death, perhaps of birthing, if we go with the um, rebirth of the butterfly, used by a um, blacksmith. Uh, god like Hephaestus to crack open a male god's head, which we've talked about in previous episodes, how this is the way that the Greeks saw the male creating, creating life is through the head, 
through thoughts, through ideas. So crack open, so almost like split open, almost like the way that a woman's body gives birth. And out it comes a goddess of war. I mean, I think that this is probably the best metaphor for patriarchy and how it takes over uh, the early goddess, early matriarchal or matrilocal or matrifocal cultures of the Mediterranean and other areas, because it is exactly like that. You take a symbol of a divine goddess, in this case, the labyrinth, you use it as a weapon and you tell a story in which a male god gives birth through his head to now a female goddess of war, right? You've you've completely taken over the entire um, the entire aspect of the symbol, the entire aspect of the metaphor. And so it blows my mind when you think about the way that history is manipulated, adapted, transformed to fit within a patriarchal structure and then sold as universal, as this is the right way of being, this has always, always been, this is the way it's meant to be, this is the proper way. Um, it's a bit infuriating. And so I, it's important for me that we talk about this. The reason why I do this podcast is because I want to talk about this. I want to let people understand that the way we think about things today is not the way that they've always been. And that we have been manipulated and gaslighted and all of us all of us, every single, no matter your political views, no matter your gender views, no matter your views, all of us have been manipulated into a type of learning that is enforced or re enforced and reinforces patriarchal norms. And so the only way to clear our minds to find our true selves is to look back through history, understand the origin of things, and then decide for ourselves what we think, you know? So before I let you go, I did want to go across from or south of the Mediterranean uh, I did find this really fascinating figure of the Oshishango of the Yoruba culture on the African continent. And I am not an expert on the Yoruba culture. And as you know, I've talked a lot about representation. And I would love um, some feedback or comments from anyone that is either of the Yoruba culture or an expert in the Yoruba culture on this divinity. But I did find this piece that came up, you know, in the double axe rabbit hole. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating. And I thought I would add it here because, again, it's it's just so interesting. So, Oshi Shango refers to a double headed to a double headed axe that is the divine weapon of Shango, a Yoruban god of thunder, patron saint of twins, and the give, giver of children. Are you seeing the connections here? We've got a god of thunder. We've got twins. We've got giver of children. Um, and this, again, I am, uh, it is not my my own uh, writing, but I have researched and found that, he, excuse me, Shango is said to have been a powerful ruler. He's said to have brought prosperity to his kingdom. He had a volatile temper. 
like most gods, and was fascinated with mystical powers. He inadvertently creates lightning that destroys his capital, kills a bunch of people, including his own wife and children. This sounds... uh, very interesting. Uh, he leaves the kingdom in repentance and later commits suicide. So much of these themes repeat themselves. This reminds me a lot of the Epic of Gilgamesh, reminds me a lot of the Hercules, the hero's epic. Yeah. Um, what's really fascinating is, is not so much the story of Shango, which seems to be a, a hero's story. But what's really um, fascinating is that his weapon in its basic form, this this Oshe Shango, this... Um, double axe is a is a shaft featuring a female figure and projecting from its head is a double axe with blades shaped sometimes like thunderstorms or sometimes just blades um it looks like just blades yeah and we're told that uh shango hurled this at people who offended him and it created uh thunderbolts so it's the iconography that fascinates me. The iconography is of a female. And on top of her head is this double axe feature. And so I think in many ways, this echoes um, the idea of the butterfly goddess, the um, the concept of the female body, in this case, literally the female body with a double axe on her head. Uh, there's a lot of echoing here. And so, like I said, I am not a representative of the Yoruba culture. And so there may be nuances to this um, and context that we are missing. But looking at it symbolically, um, there seems to be a very interesting connection. Um, I would be really interested to speak to anyone that is more of an expert in this field as to how old this mythology is uh, when is sort of the earliest dates what are some of the artifacts and what are some of the dating to see if that collaborates with the minoan culture and their use of this double axe symbol particularly around um, the female symbol of a butterfly and in closing i leave you with popular culture so i've pulled an image that anyone can look up in the double axe and it's really, really scary. <laughs> um, it's basically a bunch of monstrous dudes. I want to say dudes because they present as dudes with the horns or helmet or something, a helmet that has horns. There's an implication of the minotaur here with the double axe as a massive, massive weapon, um, a sharp weapon. Um, a killing weapon. And so I think we've come full circle in some, well, not full circle. I think we've come, actually, no, we've not full circle. Take that back. We've come in a straight line. That is, if we think about the Minoans as the beginning or anyone that predates the Minoans as a beginning of a symbol of the double axe as a butterfly or as a labyrinth, a symbol of transformation, of life, of perhaps even beauty, if we consider that the caterpillar becomes a butterfly um, and of, of a gateway of, even if we consider in the Roman terms of lips or vaginal canal or any of those things, there seems to be something very, hmm, creative 
in this symbol. Yeah, it's a symbol of creation. It's a symbol of opening. It's a symbol of transformation. And then I've taken you through the bull and that dude, Theseus. I should do a whole Why Does Theseus Suck episode. I think I will. Um, and his use or adaptation, uh, the Athenians put it in his hand, uh, of the double axe to kill Asterion or Asterius, uh, the Minotaur, and take over, colonize the Minoans, to then that um, symbol being used by the Amazons and, again, um, taken by Heracles, given to um, a monarchy, passed from father to son, and then, you know, identified with Zeus Labradeus. Um, and so on and so forth, moving forward. And then, of course, Hephaestus using it as a weapon. So we see that move as a weapon to today, where every single depiction of the double axe is somehow Viking in nature um, or somehow, you know, monstrous in nature. And I mean, we see it in the Lord of the Rings and we see it in uh, Game of Thrones. And we, you know, it, when you think about the double axe now, it, it is only as a weapon. And again, I go back to what I said earlier. It is important that we know the history of these things. Because then if we don't, we would think that it was always a weapon. And lo and behold, not only is it not a weapon, but it is a symbol of, of transformational power that belongs to the goddess that has such profound effect on the Minoan culture, on a thriving culture for many thousands of years. Um, though we've lost that link and we are now reviving it. So I think it's very important that we we talk about these things. And I hope, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I hope that you've, uh, if you feel a little bit like, oh my God, there was so much information. Uh, um, then you're on the right track, I think. Sometimes uh, we just get bombarded. This is how I feel when I fall down the rabbit hole. I'm like, what, what, what? Everything I read, I'm like, what, what? And I should tell you that this that I'm presenting to you today is does not encompass all of the knowledge about the Labrys. It is still a mystery. There are many articles out there that, of course, I did not have time to read and many other books. Um, and so I'm giving you a summary of the scholarship and the history that's been sort of agreed upon. Um, but if you're interested in this symbol or you're, you want to fall down that rabbit hole, I welcome you to do so. Um, and uh, if you liked this episode and you enjoyed listening to me <laughs> talk about this, uh, please subscribe, share, like, comment, uh, help the algorithm build our community larger and larger and so that we can share in this history together and we can have conversations about this uh this particular symbol and many other symbols in the future so thank you so very very much for joining me today i hope you have a fantastic day let me know what you think and i will see you either on social media or i will see you next time for the next episode bye all have a fantastic day